In order to look forward to the future this morning, we're going to look backward uh, a little bit. We're going, this, is, this is the first Sunday of Advent. There's going to be a lot of scripture in today's message. It's not typical. Uh, of course, there's always, uh, our uh, brother Dan's sermons are always full of scripture. Um, but we're going to have a lot of it. So you have to listen fast this morning, okay? Um, uh, as we look at what God, through His Holy Spirit inspiring the Word of God, spoken through prophets and written down, all those many thousands of years ago might have been fulfilled through Jesus. We sang, Mark sang it just a minute ago, and, um, and Bobby Sue and Rick uh, played the prelude of the Father's Love Begotten. That song uh, is um, several hundred years old. It's from the 4th century A.D. When we sing those words together... We're reaching way back, 1,600 years we're reaching back to join Christians through the ages singing those uh, songs and carols and hymns and singing Scripture together. When we sing, especially when we sing Christmas carols, I'm not talking about um, rocking around the Christmas tree and Jingle Bells and uh, Mariah Carey, uh, All I Want for Christmas, not what we're talking about. When we sing Christmas carols together, they're full of rich theology that pushes the truths that we know deep down into our souls. And so that when uh, we have been singing together, when things are going well, we sing the Christmas carols and we, we rejoice in what is good and how life is good so that we can remember later when our circumstances, and the days are harder, we can remember what we learned when things were good. All this, when we sing songs together in worship, it pushes what we sing deep into our souls that we can remember it later. So, Of the Father's Love Begotten um, is one of those songs that's just, it's hard to sing. Uh, That's why Mark sang it by himself, because he can pull that off. It's hard to sing, but the words are rich. The theology is rich and deep and true. uh, The carol itself, um, like I said, is from the 4th century. It was written in Latin, which is one reason it's difficult to sing in English. Uh, And it's eight stanzas long. I'm not going to read them all. Of the Father's love begotten, ere the worlds began to be, He is Alpha and Omega, He the source, the ending He. Of the things that are, that have been, and that future years shall see, evermore and evermore. At His word the worlds were framed, He commanded, it was done, heaven and earth and depths of ocean in their threefold order, one. All that grows beneath the shining of the moon and burning sun, evermore and evermore. He is found in human fashion, death and sorrow here to know, that the race of Adam's children, doomed by law to endless woe, may not henceforth die and perish in the dreadful gulf below evermore and evermore. The text of that song, coupled with the scripture we're going to look at this morning, we see that how things will be one day is how it was designed 
from the beginning. That it always was going to be this way. And you have to believe that in your heart. Jesus, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Alpha, the first Greek letter. Omega, the last Greek letter. The beginning and the end. The one who set all creation into place. And the one who will set it right. See, Jesus' claim of divinity, that while he was here, he was fully man, his claim of divinity is the most serious claim anyone has ever made. The most serious claim any, anybody has ever made. And if he wasn't who he said he was, then either he was a fool for saying so, or we're fools for believing it, or the truth, he was who he said he was. Today we want to, as we look at the first Sunday of Advent, we want to make a biblical case for why God sent Jesus and how he did it. We're going to be all over the place in the Old Testament and back over to the New Testament. Um, the, when we read the Old Testament scripture here in just a minute, the, it might be easy to imagine that, okay, these, these things happened. Jesus was born and uh, Jesus died. And, and so then somebody took all of the things that he said and did and wrote them down and called them prophecy at some point uh, after Jesus existed. That didn't happen. The, the timing, the history of the Old Testament and its prophecies is not in question throughout human history. Once the Holy Spirit delivered it to the, the prophets... Once the Holy Spirit delivered it to Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament to Moses, it was written down and preserved very carefully over the years. We can with, with uh, certainty say that the timing of the words that we're going to read this morning from Isaiah were written 700 years before the birth of Christ. So let's look together at Isaiah 11. Now as we go through this passage, I'm going to, to pause and uh, editorialize just a little bit. But we're going to be in Isaiah 1, or Isaiah 11, 1 through 10. Isaiah 11. As we read it, we're reminded that all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Right? Let's read it together. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. So the passage is telling us that uh, the coming Messiah is going to come in human form. Uh, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. 
And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. So the Messiah would be both uh, human and divine. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. That is, he will decide uh, uh, who lives and who dies in a just manner. And faithfulness, the belt of his loins. That is, he will not give in to any kind of temptation. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little, sh- little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the, the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. That is, the Messiah will be bringing peace to the earth. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse, that's Jesus, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Let's pray together. God, we pray that the truth of your word would be clear to us this morning that you would show us how incredible it was that you set everything to be just as it happened and that we should believe that what Jesus did for us would save us and all of creation. In your name we pray, amen. All right. So the stuff that we're looking at this morning is not going to be new to most folks who have been believers for a while, okay? There's nothing new or earth-shattering in any of this. And part of that is the problem, because we get familiar with the, the passages, with the story, with the, we get familiar with what happened, and we fail to be amazed and astounded at what God has done. Because what he has done is quite literally earth shattering. It is astounding to see what God has done and how he put everything together to accomplish his purposes. See, when Jesus was born, and y'all, y'all have heard me say this, Brother Dan has said it, uh, when Jesus was born, And God came to us incarnate. Though we remember him as a sweet baby in a manger, Christmas was an act of war. A a world that was at war with God, a world that sin inhabited and put man at odds with God. And God settled it by sending Jesus. But all that started, number one, with a calamity in the garden. He had made everything to be perfect. You know the the creation story. He had made everything to be perfect. And he gave Adam and Eve one prohibition, one instruction. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they did it anyway. Satan enters the garden and tempts them uh, convinces them to rebel against God's instruction, and all of creation broke apart. They were banished from the garden, and then 
God gives the very first prophecy, the very first promise of grace, the very first description of what Jesus, the Messiah, would do. Genesis 3.15 tells us, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, he's talking to Adam, and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now he's actually, he's talking to the serpent there. He tells the serpent, he tells Satan, sin incarnate in Satan there. He says, I'm going to make a way. You're going to attack him. You're going to think that you have won. And he's going to crush your head. And the way that that this is set up, God says that this will happen through the seed of the woman. So God says that a, a child will be born. And he will have all the power, and he will have all of the omnipotence, because he is God. He is eternally existent, with uh, present from the very beginning, and he will become a man. All that happens uh, in that first prophecy, right there. So. What about omnipotence? If God is all-powerful, he can do what he likes, right? He's God. He gets to choose. He gets to decide. He would would be able to do things in his way. And the rest of the time between the garden and... And the time that Jesus came would be because God put it together in that way. So the, the part about Jesus being uh, coming through the, the line of, uh, that, uh, from the woman is a prophecy not about the woman, but about the child that would be born. There are streams of Christian thought that would say that and you may have been raised in in Catholic tradition, that this is about Mary and what she, how special she would be and and what she would do. This is prophecy about Jesus and what he would do. It's not about Mary. So Galatians uh, chapter 4, 4 through 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. When the fullness of time, that phrase fullness of time is fun, right? means when all of the things had happened just in the right order, when everything was as God wanted it to be, here's what happened. God sent forth his son. So we, we knew that following this calamity in the garden, that the world would need a Messiah. The world would need someone to put everything back together. It would happen through, number two, a chosen people. So after leaving the garden, uh, sin uh, filled the world, 
God judged the world with uh, the flood, right? And then the Tower of Babel. He scattered peoples all over the, the earth because their language changed. And he found one man. The Bible tells us that, that uh, the Lord looked to and fro over the whole earth and found one man who was his. And he made a covenant with Abraham. And he decided uh, to give Abraham a land that would be promised to him, Israel. He gave these, uh, these people that would be in Abraham's family a legacy. He made them a great nation, and he would be their Lord. And through Israel, all the peoples of the earth were going to be blessed. These are promises to Abraham. Genesis 12, 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and in him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He made a way, the Lord made a way for the world to be saved through this one people. Jesus confirmed this talking to the woman at the well who was not Jewish. He said, you worship what you do not know. This is John 4. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. Words from Jesus' mouth. The nation of Israel was designed to display God's glory to all the nations and the redemption of the world would come through the people Israel. It was designed to be that way. Would Israel be able to do it? No. Over and over and over, Israel demonstrated their uh, unwillingness, their rebellion. Okay? They demonstrated they would not be able to do this. The Lord knew that. He sent Jesus to save the whole world. But within the nation of Israel, we see number three, a particular tribe. Abraham had a son, Isaac, who had a son, Jacob, who had 12 sons, and each one was the head of the, one of the tribes of Israel. And the Messiah would come through the tribe of Judah. Genesis 49. This, uh, this, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So the Messiah was going to come through the tribe of Judah. Revelation 5.5 uh, confirms this. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So the Messiah would have to come through the tribe of Judah. Israel wanted a king. And so how many of you have ever received what uh, you prayed for and, uh, and you got it and it turned out to be uh, not exactly what you were expecting. I think all of us probably have uh, that in our experience. Pray for something. The Lord gives you exactly what you wanted, but it wasn't what you thought it was going to be. Israel told, uh, told the prophet they wanted a king. Israel, uh, the nation wanted a king, and so God gave them a king, and the first king was Saul, and he was from the tribe of Benjamin, which wasn't the tribe of Judah. So, Israel was stuck with King Saul, who ended up being a judgment on them. And Saul disobeyed God, just as uh, God knew he would. And so God anointed David to be the king. 
And through David's line, David from the tribe of Judah, through David's line, number four, an eternal throne. An eternal throne. The Messiah would come to set everything right through David's dynasty. 2 Samuel 7. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offering after you. This is the Lord speaking uh, through Samuel to David. Who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So there are parts of this passage that are talking directly about Solomon and God's chastisement and discipline of Solomon. And at the end of the passage, he's talking about Jesus, his everlasting descendant of David. Matthew 12, 23. Now, so all of these things had been taught to the Jews through the years, and they were looking for the Messiah to come from the line of David. They knew that this is the way it would go. And Matthew 12, 23, people saw what Jesus had done, and they, all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? They looked at what he was doing, and they saw this might be the guy. Right? So all of these things that God has already done to get Jesus into the world might, if you, you know, if you put all the pieces together, might be a coincidence of some kind, right? It could happen that way. Until we get to the next prophecy from Isaiah 7. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And there's a part in there that we kind of miss. Sometimes we gloss over it because we're accustomed to reading it. That gives us number five, a laughable impossibility. The virgin shall conceive. Everybody over middle school will tell you that that can't happen. Right? We learn it, we learn it pretty early in life. That doesn't happen. It didn't happen in Isaiah's day. It didn't happen in Mary and Joseph's day. It doesn't happen today. Except for the one time it did. Luke 1, 26-37, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus." He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary says, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her for who has been called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. The Lord God put all of these things in motion and then he did the absolute impossible. He exercised an option that goes along when you have omnipotence. And he stepped in 
and he fulfilled his own prophecy that the virgin would bear a son. But kings are born in palaces. Conquering heroes don't come from stables in tiny towns. And oh, by the way, you had just heard from Gabriel that Mary and Joseph were in Nazareth. But there was a prophecy that Jesus would come from somewhere else. Number six, an unimportant village. Micah 5.2 But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Okay. So what in the world would take this uh, soon-to-be young family, Mary and Joseph not yet married, Mary's pregnant, what in the world would take them to Bethlehem from Nazareth? Why would anybody go to Bethlehem? So in his omnipotence, the Lord arranged a census. There was going to be a tax. And so Caesar Augustus, Luke 2, in those, decree, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world would be registered. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. We won't go uh, too far into this this morning, but the Roman occupation of Judea was the perfect time for Jesus to be born. Because when this happened, the Greek language had filled all over the eastern Mediterranean. Okay? And so as Jesus was born, as the Lord made all of this uh, to be, as Jesus was born, the words that he spoke, though in Aramaic, would be written down in Greek, for which there are, uh, is, it, it is one of the most complex languages in human history. It was the perfect time that this would have spread over the Roman world. It had to be this way. In Greek, there are three, three words for the word love, where we only have one. We know things from the, from the original Greek exactly what the Lord intended us to know as it was written. God in his omnipotence put all of this together to be this way. And number six, seven, a forever peace. Luke two twenty five. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit to, into the temple. And when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms, blessed God, and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory for your people Israel. Simeon, working in the temple, had prayed his whole life that he would get to see the Messiah, and he got to, and immediately there was peace for him. 
even through 400 years before Jesus was born, the Israelites had been without a prophet, begging and pleading for the Lord to send, send them a prophet and then to send them the Messiah. And they had him. So as we consider what was prophesied and how it was fulfilled this morning, it kind of makes a, a bit of a, a biblical case, a bit of an intellectual case for Jesus being who he said he was. But you can hear these things. You can read these things for yourself. But if you don't believe it, in your heart. And belief involves a change, repentance, turning from sin. Belief, belief in this case requires action on your part. The action of turning from who you used to be and turning toward Jesus. God said everything, created everything to be perfect and man messed it up. And the gospel is simply this, that Jesus, who had all that he, as king of creation, he had all things in his own power, and he put on human flesh and dwelt among us. And this is good news to us. He suffered, took our sin upon himself, became sin for us. He was crucified then he rose again to defeat death and hell forever. And you have to repent, agree with God that whatever is in your heart that is sinful, agree that it is sin and ask him to forgive you, to trust in him that the repentance of that sin, that that forgiveness was enough to save you and believe that he has saved you. That's the gospel this morning. Would you stand and bow your heads? If you've never asked the Lord to forgive you of your sin, if you've never trusted in him for salvation, no amount of biblical case-making could be enough to convince you that you need to repent and believe. Only the Holy Spirit working in your heart can do that. But you have to let him do that. If you feel this morning that the Spirit is working in your heart, just ask the Lord to forgive you right there where you sit, where you stand. Ask him to forgive you, to come into your heart and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And then trust him with your whole life, living by repentance and faith. Father, in this place we ask that you would show us how you want us to trust you more. Thank you for the wonder that is all of the stuff that you worked out to get Jesus to us that we might be saved.
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.